This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Shalom, welcome to Practical Spirituality here in Isha Torah, in the old city of Jerusalem, overlooking the Western Wall. Today we're going to talk about responsibility. And we're going to talk about responsibility in a, in a unique way. And that is, how much responsibility are you supposed to actually take on? Like, how much responsibility? People generally have a terrible relationship with responsibility. As I quote Cheech Marin of Cheech and Chong, Cheech said, responsibility is a heavy responsibility. I think he ended that with the word man. And so, and so there, so people have, uh, you know, people, people have a real manana relationship with life. You know, like, tomorrow. Do it tomorrow. Push it off. And, and there's a certain benefit, obviously, because why do today what you can do tomorrow? You know, like, why get it done at all? And, and then you can just basically push things off. And you, you just get that benefit of pushing it off. Right? Fun to push it off a little bit, right? Except there's a couple things you pay with when you push things off. One of the things, one of the things you pay with is feeling alive. <laughs> Because you notice how when you push things off, you feel dead inside. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, there's a certain numbing pleasure you get out of pushing things off. But the overall is you feel dead. And you also feel very unmotivated. And the likelihood you would get up to even motivate to do something that might even be fun a couple hours later is like, actually unlikely. To do something that actually is fun and might be enjoyable. You might actually get so lethargic from pushing things off. There's something that sparks inside of us when we do the responsibility, when we take on a responsibility, something sparks inside. And we likely will will, um, spring into action for the rest of our day. And this is why uh, one of the famous things I've learned and I've actually taken on from from, uh, Jordan Peterson, the famous speaker, is that, that is, make your bed in the morning. Make your bed in the morning. Do something first. Like, have a simple thing done. It's the exact opposite of another personal growth guru who says, eat that frog. His book's called Eat That Frog. And eat that frog, he says the opposite. Do something big first. Like, no one wants to eat a frog, right? But the, but the big responsibility of your list of things you got to do, start with that and everything else is downhill after that. I personally would stay in bed all day if it was to do my biggest responsibility. I like making my bed. I feel like that's a great way to start. That something very simple and one less thing to fall upon someone else in my household will leave nameless to take care of. You know what? I'll take care of it. And, and the likelihood of me washing my spoon after I made my coffee, having made my bed, is so much higher than me not making my bed and throwing the coffee, you know, the teaspoon just into the sink for some invisible uh, fairy, the sink fairy, to come, who will leave nameless, the sink fairy, to come and wash that spoon. So, on the one hand, we get something by avoiding responsibility. In that, we get to chill. But on the other hand, uh, deep lethargy kicks in, and it gets to the feeling of death, like like we're dead inside. And you know what I'm talking about. Those who are like famous responsibility avoiders, you know what I'm talking about with that dead feeling inside. 
And the proof is, is you could do like the smallest thing, like get yourself finally to get up and do one tiny thing, like deliver a letter to the post office that you were supposed to deliver. And the, you'll walk out of there like, like a million bucks. You'll walk out of there like, like you just won the lottery. Can you imagine if someone comes up to you and says, what's the good news? You look great. You're like, I delivered a letter. <laughs> That's all I did. So, so even the smallest responsibility is a major boost. And therefore, our relationship to avoiding responsibility has to be put in perspective of what, of the price you pay. What's it cost you? What's it cost you to push things off? And what it costs you is a sense of live, liveliness, aliveness. Now, but let's go deeper about responsibility. Let's take it a step deeper. There are two types of personalities in the world. There are flow personalities, and there are structure personalities. And so we can't just dismiss the irresponsible. <laughs> we can't just dismiss them as simply irresponsible. If they're being irresponsible, they're in trouble. We'll definitely not dismiss them. But, but it feels in a way like the flow personalities do get some slack. Some slack. Why? Why would they get some slack? Because you can't expect every person you meet is a one-stop shop. Generally, people are either flow or structure. It's two shops. Flow personalities are people who, they don't like schedule. They're generally creative. If they have their summers off, they will let God schedule their summer for them. I'll bring another chair. Sorry about this. Apologize to my life. Life people. Here you go. Are you gonna share? Oh my gosh, that's so cute. But I actually have another chair. Is this your brother? You guys are kind of together. Move this table. I apologize to my media people for these interruptions. It's just I was born to be a mater D. I like seating people. I like people to be comfortable. My biggest fear in life was was uh, social. Uh, what's it called? Social anxiety. Horrible, horrible social anxiety. So even though I'm basically over it, the when someone walks in the room and just feels that feeling of like uh, deer in headlights, like I'd rather just die than walk in here right now. So I want to seat them quickly and effectively. And really, the truth is, those back chairs should all—I should really keep them empty. But that makes it easy. Okay. You found your stuff. Oh, good. good. I lost my phone too. Yeah, it was meant to be that I would ask for a cable. Man. Um, flow people, they, if they have their summers, um, nicely. Uh, move your chair a bit that way. And if you can move your chair a bit. Oh, no, she's good. You're good. Now you're good. Say hi for me. Um, if you have your. Your flow people are generally creative types. Now, how important is that? 
How important are creative types to God's creation? Well, if you look at the corporate world, you would think not that important. Uh, the corporate world aren't interested in that many creative people except for very specific tasks, like website development. You know, like that person should be somewhat creative. And when they build their office, they will hire an interior designer, hopefully, who will be somewhat creative. But they will be on a very short-term position with that corporation because the second they're done putting in the last couch in the waiting room, they're fired, so to speak, meaning their job's over. You can go back to your little creative place and, and we'll stay in the structure mode of you know, our business. So you could look at the world as a structured environment only. You could also look at the Jewish world that way because the leaders of the Jewish world are generally structure-oriented people. Certainly the principles of schools, which are not, I'm sure by any coincidence, called Min HaHel, or the person from hell. Yeah. Hell. Okay. So, but why are they from hell? Why is a principle from hell? Because they, unless they're really good principles, they probably would prefer that the kids in the school, which could be thousands, that the kids in the school would all act in a structured manner, like creative people, flow people, have cause principles to lose sleep at night. And so if we can somehow trim off the appendages of the creative people, so then somehow I, my life as a principal will be easier. And, and that kind of person should not be a principal of the school, obviously. But most are like that. And, and there's also, um, usually if they're, let's say it's a Hasidic court, so they would have a very creative leader, which is great. Um, they're terrible logistics, but they're super spiritual. And, and that's what makes someone a spiritual leader. But what happens is sometimes the spiritual leader dies, and he leaves behind no one but a son who doesn't have it. He just doesn't have it. And so what happens is the structure of people gather around him and take over the place. And, the, and that new, the new spiritual leader is not a spiritual leader, but rather he's a puppet in the hands of structure, what are called askanim, which are the askanim of the community. And then next thing you know, that chassidus is going to become dangerous for the flow and creative types. And the structure people will once again have their way, just like the corporate world. Only now it's a Hasidic community that's gone corporate. Anyway, as you can see, that the, the structure community has to learn how to appreciate such things. But let's see in this very room right now how much creativity is here and imagine a world without it. Now, the last time I did this, I was standing on the streets of Nahla Ot talking to mm. a person about the importance of creativity. And we were looking around in Nahla Ot. Nahla Ot is the, it's kind of the Venice Beach of, of Israel. It's, it's the... It's the more creative community. It's where you have people walking around with guitars and stuff, generally smells of cannabis. And it's, a, it's just a more bohemian community there. And, uh, but, the, but also very mixed, meaning you have like the holiest of the holy. You have like full-on Sephardic Mekubalim, like Kabbalistic mystics. You have... You Basically, you're a type of Rosh You have total, yeah. You have total, total uh, yuppies and like doctors and corporate types and giant houses from that CEOs live in. And, and uh, it's the most mixed, wild community in Jerusalem. And if you ever want to see it, anytime you're at the Shuk, the open-air market, Shuk Machane Yehuda, you're literally there because it borders, it's bordered by 
Jaffa on one side and Agrippus on the other. And the second you go even one foot off Agrippus, you're in the courtyards of Nachalot. Um, definitely somewhere to check out on Purim. But Agrippus is also known as Alav Shmuel Baruch. So it has two names on the same street. Doesn't it? Anyway, um, but back to our business. Is Those are flow people. And so let's take a moment. So what do we got that's creative in this room? What do we got creative? Okay, so we got the wallpaper. That's creative. Oh, do you say everything? Yeah, it is everything. It really is everything. Because someone had to make a decision on these tables. And they chose wood tops, which is nice. I'm glad. Um, yeah, the bottle was created in the shape of a human body, basically. Yeah. And, um, and uh, the bottle is kind of nice. And... Um, Everyone's wearing clothing that was designed by a creative. I promise you, your clothes were designed by a creative, even if it's black. And um, uh, what else? Your the way your hair is is creative. Um, the follicles, follicles, and the men's beards in this room, even identical twins have different beards. It's uh, the, that's super creative. The the actual pipes that pipe down the the brains to the heart. Which is a man's beard is because men don't naturally. You, you ever wonder why women don't have beards? No. You never wondered why women don't have beards. Anyway, let's just say we're all happy about that. But <laughs> although you can also in Nachlot find a couple bearded ladies <laughs> in my shtetl. Yeah. And it's so liberal. Some of the areas of meaning there's some such liberal people in Nachlot that they're. I'm sure there's. There are some women who actually could grow well, beards. Now, now the um, those are women in quotes, and and the anyway the the hair follicles in a man's beard are to get the brains to the heart, to get the brains to the heart. It, they're pipes. They look they're tubular. You know, hair on the head is flat. That's why, you know, many people have straight hair, unless the Africans will have tubular hair. But, but um, most people in the rest of the world have flat hair on their head. And whereas the hair on the beard is tubular. That's why it's so squaggly. And, uh, but it's, those are pipes that pipe down the head to the heart. And, and so it's important for men to have beards. And uh, also, since I'm talking about beards for a moment, it's important to have a beard so that you know who you are. Because there's no way to know who you are without a beard. What do I mean by that? So much of who we are is given to us by others. Others give us who we are. I mean, the goal is that you would be self-generated. You give who you are to the world. But so much of our lives is more defaulted by our the people closest to us kind of give us who we are. And so... And so, if they're giving you who you are, well, the first thing they're giving you is how you look. You know, like, people relate to you as, are you male, are you female, are you, are you tall, are you short, are you... They're relating to how you look. Well, God gave each man and woman a certain look. It's a God-given look that people will relate to you with. And uh, there's a seat there if you want. It's a God-given look. But when a man if I can quote the Torah, destroys his beard. They don't use the word shave in Israel. It's called lashchit. It means to destroy. 
when a man destroys his beard, and that's the, in, term, in Torah, you either have a beard or you destroy a beard. You don't shave. Shave's a nice, nice neutral Western way of, of talking about messing with one's beard. So when a man destroys his beard, he's destroying his look of what he would look like. Well, once I don't look the way God made me look, so now everyone's relating me to some other look. You understand? You don't know who you are. Because you, you're, you're relating to the world based on how the world's relating to you most of the time. And okay, some days you're really self-generated. Okay, that's beautiful, and you should be. And certainly I work in my seminars to train people in being self-generated people. Not others-generated, but self-generated. But even I, like today, I'm having such a hard day. I'm having a hard week. And you can hear my voice. It's just, I'm like, it's an off week, big time. So I'm being generated by you right now. I think it's really good I came in, too. Because <laughs> had I stayed in bed, I was like, I have nothing to generate today. So I need you to generate me. Now, imagine, like, for example, let's say you grew your beard. And it turned out it goes to there. And that dude back there grows his beard. And his goes to here. Yeah? Here. And you don't fold it up, which I think also you're not supposed to do. But you let it go down. Yeah? I mean, you probably have to move to the spot. But... <laughs> You know, and you grow your beard, and it turns out it's one of those split pea beards. Yeah. It's the split pea when you're in the wind, they go over your shoulders. You know? The over-the-shoulder beard holder. So, so the... Um, so, you never know. But I promise you this, that people will interact with you differently. They'll interact with you differently, which means you'll interact with yourself differently. And you'll get to know yourself based on the face God gave you. Understand? And it's funny, I'll meet Westerners sometimes who, you know, like people have been shaving since they were born. And, you know, they live in Beverly Hills or whatever. And they're like, and they'll say to me something like, I can't see you. Like, what's under there? You know, who are you? You know, and to, you know, to speak to me that way. Obviously, we're talking about relatives. Because <laughs> only relatives would say such a thing to a rabbi. But, you know, no, we have a principle, ain't nothing be your rope. There's no, there's no prophet in his hometown. <laughs> you know, you can come back from prophesizing, you come back to your hometown, they're like, oh, there's Skip. What's up, Skip? It's like, Skip? <laughs> Do you know who you're talking to? Yeah, Skip. That's who we're talking to. I remember you when you were diapers. Don't give me no prophecies. So the a navi beat your robe. And it's really amazing. LA's the only place I don't teach when I travel. And I grew up in LA and and I'll give a little class to like Aish Persia, you know. That's about it. But you know, they, they weren't they didn't I don't think their parents or grandparents lived there when I lived in LA, so it's not my city when I teach Aish Persia. Did you grow up in Burbank or you grew up? I grew up in West LA. So anyway, but back to flow and structure is um, there's a tremendous amount of creativity all around us at all times. Now, imagine it was all taken away right now. Like, I'm going to snap my fingers, and these walls... By the way, I was in this room when it was just uh, uh, concrete. I was here when it was concrete. And there was no Jerusalem stone floor. Okay? This, these big, giant slabs of stone were not here. These are, this is like an incredible tile floor. It's not simple to create tiles this big from Jerusalem stone. I mean, this is like... High end, and, it, and it, a white floor gives a feel to it. You know, and it's white Jerusalem stone. You know. It's amazing how much it is to export Jerusalem stone. 
you know, there's synagogues. Anyone here go to a synagogue that exported some Jerusalem stone for their arnica, like the by the ark or anything? It's a fortune. You come to Israel, you're you're standing on it. You know, everywhere you go, you're on Jerusalem stone. You know, I don't know why Israel's so rough about exporting, but it's rough about. It. Now this, it could be the most expensive thing in an entire synagogue is the Jerusalem stone surrounding the ark. You know, for those who do it. And we should really smuggle it out in our suitcases. They're like, this bag's a little overweight, sir. You mind opening it? <laughs> what, 200 pounds? That's nothing. No, I'd rather just pay, please. Maybe that's where it all came from, from paying for 200-pound suitcases. <laughs> I'm totally out of my mind today. <laughs> you guys came on a good day. You came on a day, especially these kids over here. You got me on a good day. Yeah. These kids like, he should get sick more often. <laughs> anyway, um, but I remember this room. It was concrete, like a gray concrete on the floor, gray concrete walls. There were no windows. And there were certainly no tables. And I guess I'd have to put you all on catcher chairs. Those are the plastic chairs. So now you're on catcher chairs, not on these wood, you know, nouveau molded, you know, plywood chairs, which are pretty fancy too. They just make a racket when I'm moving people around. Can you imagine what life would be like? Oh, and I have to put you all in, I don't know, uh, what do you call those suits when there's like a chemical emergency? Yeah, yeah. Say it again. Hazmat. hazmat and we can't have creative clothes so imagine you're all in hazmat suits and me too we're all in hazmat suits and in honor of the coronavirus we're all wearing masks as well so no creativity in the way God made your face which we also discussed is our face and, and I didn't explain why women don't have beards but I think you get it it's, they're they're able to they're able to think it and feel it like that mm-hmm. you know they think it, they're already feeling it. The tears are coming, like, quickly. And they, if they need to feel it, whether it's joy or sadness, they think that. Whereas men, we, we, got, we got this whole man thing going on. And we need our beards to draw the thoughts to them. Draw the thoughts. And it even goes deeper. Than, I'm not going to explain the real cabal of it, but every follicle of a man's face is this beard. Every follicle is exists, actually, in a world called... Berea, I'm not going to go deep into this, but in a world called Berea, where the whole creation's piped down from it. And so, and so that's why you'll notice Kabbalists will not mess with their beards. Like, it doesn't matter what kind of Kabbalist you are. You could be Ashkenaz, Sephardic, Yemenite, you know, uh, Ashkenazi, Hasidic, uh, Yeshivish. If you're Kabbalistic, you're not touching your beard. Like, we're not going to mess with the creation itself because it's the whole thing's being piped down and we are created cosmically as microcosms of the creation and so we we, we don't mess with that stuff with our beards now um, anyway this class would be this rural, this world would be horrible if we didn't have the flow people in it and for those who know a little Kabbalah, we're talking about Chachma people, which are meaning of life people, and Chesed people, which are really like super creative in um, how they are interpersonally. 
or Netzach people, who are the artists that created these tables and the, and the tapestries and the sides and the, our clothing were all made by Netzach people. They were designed by Netzach all the designers of them. Now the companies that actually made it happen, that like contacted the factories and, and like the trucking and shipping people and, and all the money that had to tra- crop, change hands and the loans and the, the financing and the insurance on the fabrics that were sent over. You know, all that's handled by floor structure people. Who handled all that? That was all the structure people took care of all that stuff. Now, by the way, there is a middle ground one in a hundred people. Well, he, at the top, in the intellect, it's one in a million people. But here it's like one in a, one in a hundred, and here it's one in a hundred. Is, um, there are people, they're called managers. They're the few managers in the world who, can, who have both fully, fully, 100% flow, 100% structure, and therefore they, can, they create the synergy between the flow and structure. They're managing. They're in management. Those are unique people, unique people. And they, uh, but they, the funny thing is we all have to know who we are. It's so important to know who you are because so many people are in management positions who are structured people. I spoke about that earlier. And so it messes up the institution. messes up the country if it's a government. messes up the institution if it's a company. It messes up the school if it's an educational school to have a structured person in a management position. They have no business in management. No business. A manager tells them to make sure there's enough copies of a certain amount of leaflets that have to go out for a parent-teacher association meeting. There's a manager who tells the structure person to get that done. Okay, um, the people who raise their hands, or anyone who would like to now raise their hand, tunnel tour is now. So uh, there was um, she left for the tunnel. There's people. I already kind of they already extracted themselves. Anyone else doing tunnel tour? Have to sign up beforehand, or do you show up? It was the last one. Anyone never been on the tunnel tour? It's not to be. It's just freaky awesome. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.